Okay, good evening. Welcome uh, to Alpha. You find on your book, on your seats, um, the Bible. We've all got the same one so that we can just look at the page numbers um, if we look at anything during the evening. Has everybody got a manual? And uh, tonight we're going to be looking at week three, which is Who is Jesus? Somebody can tell me what page that's on. Page eight. Okay, there you go. I, I grew up with the view that Christianity was boring, was irrelevant, and was completely dull and was for, basically was for weak people in life. That was the view I had. So I was very much against Christianity, but my preconceptions were shattered really when I met a guy who I got on with very well. He had a sense of humor. He was, uh, he's played in the same sports team as I did. Um, he was a jazz guitarist. He, he got on well with a lot of people and he had a sense, this sense of humor that, that everybody seemed to enjoy. And I then discovered he was a Christian as well. And the two didn't really go together in my book. You know, they're just the two things I couldn't comprehend at all. And it took me quite a long time to really get to grips with that. But really, I've been asking the wrong question. The question I should have been asking is, is Christianity true? Because if it's true, then it's true for everybody. Um, whether you're the most boring person in the world or the most adventurous person in the world, it doesn't really matter. What matters is whether it's true or not. And a lot of people think that Christianity is simply a blind faith and it's got nothing to do with whether it's true. And the story goes of a British woman who's driving through Saudi Arabia. She's just past the petrol station when suddenly her car grinds to a halt. The fuel gauge shows empty and she thinks, oh, if only I'd stopped. And she's about half a mile down and she's looking around. She can't find anything to go and get some petrol in. She eventually digs out of the boot of the car a child's potty and off she goes, walks the half mile back to the petrol station together, gets to fill it up with petrol, you see, and come back so she can drive, drive a bit further. Anyway, she's busy pouring the contents of the potty into the, the petrol tank when uh, an oil sheik drives up in his limousine, the dark windows. They, they slide down as it slows up beside her. The windows slide down. And this guy looks out and he, he just looks at her with a smile on his face and he says, woman, he said, we may not share the same religion, but I have to admire your faith. <laughs> and from his angle, from his angle, it's uh, his blind faith. But Christian faith, I would want to look at tonight, is not a blind faith, but is actually an intelligent faith. So that's the question we're going to look at. What is the evidence for Jesus Christ? What is the evidence that he existed, that he was who he said he was? Well, first of all, what evidence is there that he existed? Is he fact or is he fiction? Was there a person called Jesus? Well, most serious historical scholars will say that there was a person called Jesus who existed. There's evidence for his existence outside of Christian writings, such as the Bible, the New Testament. There are Roman historians, a guy called Tacitus, another one called Suetonius, who wrote about Jesus in historical records. Um, there's a Jewish historian, Josephus, not a Christian believer, but he wrote this, slightly sarcastically, but he wrote this nevertheless of Jesus. And there rose about this time, referring to the time of the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, AD 26 to 36, Jesus, a wise man, if indeed we should call him a man, for he was a doer of marvelous deeds, a teacher of men who received the truth with pleasure. He won over many Jews and also many Greeks. This man was the so-called Christ. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross at the instigation of our own leaders, those who had loved him from the first did not cease. For he appeared to them on the third day alive again, as the holy prophets had predicted, 
and he said many other wonderful things. And even now, the race of Christians, so named after him, has not yet died out. That's from the antiquities of the Jews, historical records of things that happened. So there's evidence outside of the New Testament that he existed. But there's also evidence inside of the New Testament that is important to look at. Now, I used to work at the University of Birmingham there, and I was often asked, how can you believe what the Bible says? How can you trust what is in the New Testament? Surely it's full of errors. It was written so long ago, and it's, there are hundreds and hundreds of discrepancies in it. How can you put your trust? But the fact is, however, that you can trust the Bible. And uh, there's a science called textual criticism. And basically, it relies on manuscript records. There are no copies of, of any of the originals. Okay? But there are copies of copies. Manuscripts, which are copies of copies of copies, down through the years. And any historical um, document um, relies on this type of criticism. And it basically has two parts to it. The first is, the more copies you have, then the greater the accuracy is to the original, because you can cross-verify. Um, and the more similarity you have with those no number of copies, the more copies, then you can say that is likely to be accurate to what the original was. And secondly, the closer in time to the original, the greater the accuracy. So if you have a copy that was copied, say, 200 years after the original, then that is likely to be more accurate than one that is copied six or seven hundred years afterwards because, because of the passage of time. Over the page in your manual, and I'll, I'll put it up on the overhead, we have some of the ancient manuscripts from about the same sort of time as the New Testament. And we discover that we take things that are pretty good, like um, Tacitus, for example. It was written in about 100 AD. The earliest copy of it that they have in, in museums was copied in 1100 AD. Um, that's a thousand year time span, and they have 20 copies of that. And that's fairly standard for these ancient historical documents. Professor F.F. F. Bruce has said that no classical scholar would doubt manuscripts of this caliber. That is good historical documentation for what people will trust as, as reliable. However, we look at the New Testament, written 4200 AD, the earliest copy, 130 AD, okay, only 30 years after the original. They've got full manuscripts, 350 AD, about 300 years after the original. Not eight copies, not 20 copies, but 5,000 copies in Greek, 10,000 copies in Latin, and over 9,000 in other languages. And these are things that you can find in museums around the world. Somebody said this, the great textual critic of Scott, F.J.A. Hort, said, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. The evidence for it is miles higher than for anything else. So we do know that the New Testament documents are accurate accounts. And where there's any doubt, there's an alternative reading, often in the footnotes of the Bible. So the question then is, who was Jesus? What kind of ideas do you have? Um, I think when I grew up, I had just imagined him as being this guy with a white smock on, a pair of sandals that sort of floated around the place. Didn't really get his hands dirty. I just, something kind of 
beyond what I could imagine. When I read the New Testament, I discovered that actually he was something completely different. Um, first of all, you read that he, he had a human body. He got tired, like you and I do. He got hungry. He got thirsty, it tells us. He had human emotions, like we do. He was angry in the temple courts. He expressed love. He expressed sadness. He wept. He had human experiences. He was tempted, like every one of us is. He had to learn. Um, he had a job, um, some sort of manual labor, either a carpenter or a builder. Um, and he had to learn what it meant to be part of a family. He had all the humanness that you or I have. And I don't think people doubt that part. What people doubt is that he was more than this, that he was more than a man, that he was the son of God or even God himself. Billy Connolly, um, the Glaswegian comedian, said, I don't believe in Christianity, but I think Jesus was a wonderful man. I think that's a lot of people's view of who Jesus was. But was he more than that? Well, what I want to look at now is what Jesus said about himself, because that, that is worth looking at. And then also to look at evidence that backs up what he said. Um, a lot of what he said when he was on earth and is recorded in the Gospels is based around himself, who he was. It was kind of self-centered, but it wasn't selfishly centered, if you know what I mean. He was teaching people who he was. I think a lot of people in life, most people can identify with the idea that, that there's something missing in our lives. There's, at times we recognize whatever we pursue in life, we find an emptiness. There's a, there's a lack of, that didn't fulfill in quite the way I was anticipating that it would. And through the century, psychologists have observed humanity and have come up with these observations. They've identified that you and I, that people, are hungry for love. And we look for that in relationships. They've identified that people are hungry for security. We look for things around us, material things maybe, or other forms of security. And that we're also hungry for significance. What value do I have? What worth do I have? And Jesus comes along and he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. I'm the one that satisfies these deep human needs that are there. People in despair, they hit dark times in their lives. Um, the Christmas before last, I went back up to Edinburgh and I discovered that a guy that I used to sit with um, at school, that Christmas Eve had committed suicide. He'd obviously hit something in his life, which was a dark time of despair. And Jesus says, John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. People ask about life after death. We're going to cover it uh, a week on Sunday in the evening at Riverside. What, what is there after death? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. There's all the new age theories around. People look into horoscopes, look into crystals, uh, look into mediums, all sorts of things to try and discover what is ahead, what lies ahead of them in life. How should I go through life? And Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Not this is the way, try this, but I am the way. He spoke of his kingdom as though he was a king. And he also said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen God. 
There's a story of a child drawing a picture one day, and his mum comes in and says, what, what is it you're drawing? And the child says, well, I'm drawing a picture of God. And his mum says, oh, don't be silly. No, nobody knows what God looks like. And he says, well, they will when I finish my picture. <laughs> but if I claimed that, if I said, you know, by the way, if you've seen me, you've seen God, then you think, I'm getting out of here fast. But Jesus claimed that. Outrageous claim. And he also claims our supreme love. He says that we're to put him above everything else in our life. So he said some crazy things, some challenging things. He also made some indirect claims. Jesus heals a paralytic. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. I'll read it. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered there that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mats the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were there sitting, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. As you would. If you look at verse 7, it says he's blaspheming. Why? Because he's saying he forgives sins. Now, if a big guy, Dave here, big guy, comes up to me and thumps me in the face, okay, and uh, somebody else comes up and says, Dave, I forgive you. You think, what has it got to do with them? It hasn't got anything to do with them. It's between me and Dave. This guy has done nothing against Jesus as a person. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now this guy has only sinned against other people and against God. But what Jesus is claiming indirectly is, I am God because I am forgiving your sins. And that's why they say, this is, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus says, to prove that I have the authority of God to forgive sins, I will heal the guy. And that's what he does. He heals the guy to show that he has that authority. And he's indirectly claiming here that he is God. He says elsewhere um, in Matthew 25 that one day he will come to judge the world. Every one of us will stand and make a response based on how we've responded to Jesus. He also made some direct claims. If you turn in your Bibles to page 1022, Mark chapter 14 and verse 61, page 1022, this is just later on in Mark's Gospel. <clears throat> Mark chapter 14 and the second half of verse 61. And I'll just read a little bit here. 
Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. So here he's claiming that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, the Chosen One from God. And secondly, he's claiming to be the Son of God, the Son of the Blessed One. I am, said Jesus. Move over to, uh, well, elsewhere. Well, move over to page 1075. We'll have a quick look at this. John chapter 8 and verse 56. <clears throat> page 1075, John 8, 56. They, again, they're talking to Jesus. Your father Abraham, says Jesus, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Here again, he's saying that he was, Abraham was from right at the beginning of the Jewish nation. And Jesus was saying, before Abraham was, I existed. I was there before Abraham. And he uses, he says, I am, which is an Old Testament name for God. Which is why the Jews again are trying to stone him for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. Page 1089, John chapter 20, and verse 27. 1089, John 20, verse 27. Thomas the skeptic, sometimes known as Doubting Thomas, because he, he, he wouldn't believe unless he saw the nail prints in his hands after the crucifixion. Verse 27, right at the bottom of the page. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So here he says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, that's a bit over the top, Thomas. You know, let's go steady on the, you know, don't call me God here. He says, why are you so slow to believe? Why are you so slow? And the best verse, back on page 1077, 1077, John chapter 10 and verse 33. If anyone ever says, where does it say that Jesus claimed to be God? This is a great verse. John 10 verse 33. The stoning again. We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. So that's what Jesus said about himself. There's some of the claims that he made. Now, are we to take him seriously, or are we not? That's only the first part of the argument. There's a story of uh, Margaret Thatcher when she was Prime Minister visiting a psychiatric hospital where they were opening a new ward. They had this show ward already, you know, carpets, pictures on the walls, and they had all various patients who were going to meet her. They're all dressed up to the nines, and she introduces herself to the first one, and this patient doesn't know who she is, and she said, oh, who, who are you? And so Margaret Thatcher says, oh, I'm Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister of uh, the United Kingdom. And uh, the woman says, Oh, I thought that when I came in here. But the medication is very, very good. Okay, what people claim is not necessarily true. So how do you test what people are going to say? 
what they're going to say. Well, we're left really with three logical possibilities about what Jesus said about himself. Either what he said was false, or it was true. Now, if what he said about himself was false, then it could be that he didn't know it. He didn't know that it was false. Then basically, that makes him to be deluded and worthy of the psychiatric hospital. Okay, he's mad, in other words. The second option is that what he said about himself is false, and he did know it. That basically makes him out to be a liar, somebody who is out to deceive people. And that is not, that is not good. That's not a good man, that's an evil man. And the other option is that what he said about himself is true, and that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and that is God. So what evidence is there to support what he said? Well, first of all, we've got his teaching, the things he taught that we can read about in the Gospels. And many people around the world, not even Christians, say that the teachings of Jesus, particularly things like the Sermon on the Mount, are some of the best teaching that there has ever been. But it's drastically different from simple good moral teaching. What Jesus said was revolutionary. It was upside down as far as the world goes. He always spoke to people right to the heart of the matter. He always got to the root of the issue whenever he confronted people and spoke and taught. But there's something about the things he said that you know are right deep down. Bernard Ram, professor of theology, said this, No other man's words have the appeal of Jesus' words because no other man can answer the fundamental human questions as Jesus answered them. They're the kind of words and the kind of answers we would expect God to give. So we have his teaching as one strand of evidence to back up the fact that he wasn't evil and that he wasn't mad. Secondly, his works, his miracles. Many people, as I say, believe Christianity to be dull and boring and irrelevant, but Jesus was not like that. If you were around Jesus, things happened. Okay? You turn up to a party with your Tesco wine and it runs out. Jesus, you know, he says, go and get the dirty water out of the sink, pour it into the glasses. Suddenly, you've got, you know, Beaujolais, 1949 BC. Beautiful. Picnic, you know, oh, we forgot to organize the catering. Jesus finds a little boy with a lunchbox and he breaks it up, gives thanks, and he feeds 5,000 people. In fact, it's 5,000 men. There was, there was the women and the children as well. And there was loads left over. Fishing. You know, maybe you're not very good at fishing. Peter's been fishing all night. He's not caught a jot. Okay? And Jesus says, just try over there, Peter. He puts down his nets and it says he caught 153 large fish. Now, you write a number like 153 down, you know he's counted them. It's not like about 153. This is like the biggest catch he's had. Sailing. He's going sailing, a storm brews up. Jesus stands at the front of the boat and he says to the wind and to the waves, be quiet. Now winds stop, but waves don't stop for a long time. But both the wind and the waves go calm at the voice of Jesus. Beach, you've forgotten the water skis. Not a problem for Jesus. He just walks over. Hospital visitation isn't boring. There's a guy been in the hospital for 38 years, paralysed, and he walks out with Jesus. Funerals. Most of us struggle with funerals. Jesus turns up at Lazarus' funerals. The guy's been dead for four days. 
and he says, he speaks into the tomb, Lazarus, come out. And this poor guy comes out with all these bandages on, okay? And smelling whatever you smell like after you've been dead for four days. Things happened when Jesus was around. Just in your Bibles, turn to page 1077. John chapter 10 and verse 37. So I should have, should have kept you there. John chapter 10, verse 37, page 1077. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And that doesn't speak to me about someone who's deluded or evil. That speaks to me somebody who's got real power, who did wonderful things and did it because he loved people. He had compassion for people. Thirdly, we have his character. When Gandhi died, the Indian Prime Minister described him as the most Christ-like man he ever knew. That's a Hindu speaking of another Hindu and used Jesus Christ as the pinnacle of human character. But more than that, Jesus' character can't just be described by comparison, but should really be described by contrast. Why do you call me good? Jesus said to the rich young ruler. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And it's not that Jesus is better than other men, nor even that he's the best of men, but that he is good, with a goodness that's the absolute goodness of God. In 1980, um, the trade union leader, Jimmy Reid, announced that he was leaving the Communist Party. And he was interviewed on television as to why, thinking, oh, no, maybe God's involved here. And he got asked, do you now believe in God? And uh, Jimmy Reid, he grins at the camera, and he thought for a moment, and he said, I don't know about that, but if there is a God, I hope he's like Jesus. And Jesus quietly claimed moral perfection in his life. His friends consistently asserted it and backed it up. And his enemies reluctantly acknowledged it, as you read through the Gospels. And as we read the historical accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the four different accounts, it's very difficult to think this guy's a crank. Because you read it and it just it comes through the pages that it, it is true, that he was real in that. And we know what it's like, we're always at our worst under pressure. If you want to see me at my worst, it's three o'clock in the morning when the kids have woken up and I've, I've got to go into it. That's when I'm at my most selfish and most miserable and everything, under pressure. Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's got nails, he's got thorns in his head, he's in agony, humiliated. And what does he cry out? Father, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. Someone of character. Fourthly, we have his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. No one else has been accurately foretold like Jesus Christ. Um, in the Old Testament, there are some 322 distinct prophecies about Jesus, about someone who is going to come, that are literally fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Now, somebody's calculated a modest probability of that happening to any one person, of all of those prophecies being true about you and it's the same probability as winning the national lottery jackpot for 17 weeks on the trot okay unlikely to happen it's not going to happen 29 of them are fulfilled in a single day 
Some say, well, he was a con man, you know, he read them all up beforehand and he kind of brought them about in his life. Good argument. But that's very difficult to do when it concerns how you're going to die, how you're going to be buried. And it's virtually impossible on where you're going to be born. Unless, of course, you're the Messiah of God. And then fifthly, and this is the most important, is his conquest of death. Because Jesus predicted that he would die, but he predicted that on the third day he would rise to life again. Now if that didn't happen, then why believe anything else that he said? Okay? But if it did happen, then you've got to take everything that he said very, very seriously. So what is the evidence that he rose physically from the tomb? Well, first of all, what evidence is there that he was absent from the tomb in which he was buried? Some people will say that he didn't actually die. But he went through a flogging with um, a whip made of bone and metal. He hung on a cross for six hours and would have died by suffocation because you can't support yourself. The soldiers were to break the legs of anyone who hadn't yet died. But it tells us that when they got to Jesus, they didn't need to break his legs because he was already dead. If the Roman soldiers failed themselves in their duties, they would have died. And to make sure, it says, they pierced his side with their spear. And then it recorded in John chapter 19 that blood and water came out when the spear went in. There's a separation. Now that is now medi medical evidence for death. That at death, clots and the serum separate. Okay, So you get like the red stuff and the white stuff. And it tells us that blood and water came out when the spear went in. Medical evidence that he was dead. To recover from this and then move a ton and a half rock, um, to me seems ridiculous. Other people say, well, the disciples stole the body. The problem with that argument is the disciples were being persecuted, were being tortured, and eventually being put to death for simply saying, this guy's alive. Now, surely somebody would have broken if they knew he was in the shed down the bottom of the garden. Nobody's going to go to those extremes if they knew it wasn't true. Others argue the authorities stole the body but nobody produced the body to quash something that they didn't want to get started, either the Jewish authorities or the Roman authorities. Still others say that perhaps robbers stole the body, but there was nothing worth having in the tomb except actually the bandages and the grave clothes with all the spices and embalmment in it. And yet we're told that these were undisturbed in John chapter 20. The head cloth was folded up separately. It was like an empty cocoon that the body had left. So there's evidence, very strong evidence, that he was active, he was dead and absent from the tomb. What evidence is there that he was present, that he appeared to the disciples? Well, some argue that it was hallucination. Medically, though, hallucination is usually with unbalanced people, usually at random times, and with individuals. Let's look at the people. Well, we've got people like Simon Peter, the burly fisherman. Okay? We've got tax collectors, like Matthew, who doesn't miss a decimal point on anything. We've got Thomas, the skeptic, who won't believe unless he puts his fingers and hands in the wounds of Jesus. The time, 11 different occasions are recorded in the New Testament over just a period of, of, of about 40 days. It even says that he cooked breakfast with them. So it wasn't like, I think I saw a ghosty thing across the other side of a lake. 
right? But it was like he came and cooked breakfast for us. We had fish on the beach with him. We ate breakfast with him. How many people? Well, many different people on different occasions. Sometimes groups of people. And on one occasion, it tells us, over 500 people at one time he appeared to. And it's been worked out that if you gave every person that is just recorded in the New Testament just five minutes to say what they saw and bear testimony and witness to what they saw of Jesus, you'd be there for six solid working days listening to their eyewitness accounts. Other evidence was the immediate effects that it had. Okay, here was a person who'd been killed, who'd been murdered, and the last thing you want to do is stand up and say, this guy's alive and I'm following him, because you've got serious persecution. And yet, Christian faith swept right across the world from very early on, despite the persecution. And there is no personal advantage to that, unless it was true, and unless he was doing something in people's lives, because he was alive. And then lastly, there's the effect down the ages. Right through history, right across every ethnic grouping in the, in the world, people are bearing testimony to the fact that someone called Jesus has changed their life, that he's forgiven them, he's given them new life, and that he's now leading their life in a way that they were unable to do so beforehand. And millions around the world bear testimony to that today. So in summary then, what Jesus said about himself leaves us with a trilemma. He was either mad, deluded, he was bad, he was a liar, or he was God. We've got the teaching, his miracles and works, we've got his character, Old Testament prophecy fulfilled, and the evidence for the resurrection to back up the fact that what he said was true, and he was who he claimed he was. He wasn't evil, he wasn't deluded. And that the logical conclusion is that he was who he said, the Messiah, the Son of God, and in fact, God the Son. You, a mere man, claim to be God. And in conclusion then, C.S. Lewis has put it like this. He wrote this, We are then faced with a frightening alternative. The man we're talking about was and is just what he said, or else a lunatic or something worse. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that uh, you've not left us without evidence. And I pray simply that you'd help us to look at it, help us to weigh it up for ourselves, and that your spirit, Lord, would lead us into the truth. In Jesus' name. Amen.